Welcome to Outside In, a one-half-hour interview and conversation about public policy between me, Roger Kahn, and one of the many interesting people visiting the Crested Butte and Gunnison Valley this summer to share their knowledge, insights, wisdom with people in our community. Our guest today is Ambassador Robert Ford. He's a scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., and a fellow at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University, where he teaches Arab politics and diplomacy. Ambassador Ford served 30 years in the State Department and the Peace Corps, finishing his career as U.S. Ambassador to Syria from 2011 to 2014. He was received a Presidential Honor Award, the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, and the John F. Kennedy Library's 212 Profile and Courage Award. He also served as U.S. Ambassador to Algeria from 2006. He served in Iraq. He served in Bahrain, in Cameroon, in Algeria, in Egypt, in Turkey, and was a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco. Fluent in Arabic and French, he holds a BA from Johns Hopkins University to Baltimore, an MA from the Johns Hopkins School of International Advanced Studies. Ford has appeared on U.S. and Arabic television networks, written articles for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other publications, and presented guest lectures at numerous U.S. and Canada Canadian universities. Ambassador Robert Ford, it's a pleasure to have you on Outside In. Welcome. It's great to be in Crested Butte. Thank you, Roger. Listen, I, you, you are here and you spoke to the Public Policy Forum uh, uh, on Syria, about Syria. And uh, I, I have been confused by Syria and our involvements in it for a decade. And so I just guess I'm going to start by asking you, what in the world are we doing? Why are we in Syria? Well, it's easy to be confused because there isn't a clear American policy on Syria. There wasn't a clear policy during the administration of Barack Obama, and there still isn't a very clear policy on Syria. And one of the things that I highlight when I speak to audiences around the United States is that if we are not careful, we can end up sliding down a slippery slope into greater military involvement against Iran, against Bashar al-Assad's Syrian army, maybe even against our NATO ally, Turkey, or, God forbid, against Russia. And so it's really important for the Trump administration now to define carefully what are the most important national interests in Syria and then devise a strategy to secure those interests. Right now, what you see, Roger, is a series of one-off steps that are being taken that don't necessarily connect and create a broader policy or a strategy. When you say one-off steps, what does that mean? For example, uh, this past week, we had an American general, the commander of all of our forces in the Middle East, from Egypt to Afghanistan, visiting a little town in northern Syria called Menbij. And while he was there, he said, we're going to defend Menbij. We're not leaving. Well, there's no Islamic state in Menbij. There hasn't been any Islamic state in Menbij for more than two years. So what are we defending it against? Well, it appears we're defending it against Turkey 
on behalf of Syrian Kurds. But when in the United States was there ever a debate about how important Syrian Kurds are to American national security? When I was the American ambassador in Syria seven years ago, Syrian Kurds were not an American national interest. Now suddenly they are. When did we have that debate? And what's the point of it? Are we going to fight a war with Turkey on behalf of two million Syrian Kurds? Is that really what we're planning to do? This is what I mean about how does this connect to a broader strategy? I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm, I'm wondering what our American interests are in Syria. Mm-hmm. I've been wondering about that for a long time. Yeah. I'm going to boil it down to the minimal. We don't have an interest really in whether or not Bashar al-Assad stays, and he's already won the war. What we don't want is for terrorist groups that continue to operate in Syria to be able to reach outside of Syria and attack us or to attack uh, our friends, uh, terrorists based out of Syria, uh, are responsible for the attacks in Paris in 2015, for example. Uh, terrorists with connections to Syria have attacked uh, civilians in Belgium, in Brussels, uh, in Turkey, uh, again, a NATO ally. Uh, that's what we don't want. We would like also for, in a perfect world, we would like for the refugee flows, the people, the civilians fleeing the fighting, uh, to not have to flee. We'd like the fighting to stop, ideally. Um, and we'd like for them to be able to go home. But that's less important in a hard, thought-out, real strategy. The most important thing is for violence in Syria not to extend outside of Syria and touch us and touch our close allies. So, so now our interest is not extending violence outside Syria that exists in Syria. I hear that clearly. In other words, contain it. But what was it a few years ago? And what was it a decade ago? When, when I was the American ambassador in Syria, we had hoped that we could get the Syrian government under the dictator, Bashar al-Assad, to negotiate with the opposition, which was fighting him, some kind of a deal to get to a national unity government. And it's not a secret that the Americans provided weapons uh, to some of the uh, opposition groups that were fighting Assad, not with the purpose of overthrowing Assad. That was never the American goal. It would have been much too difficult. And frankly, we didn't know who should run Syria anyway. We wanted Syrians to negotiate it, just as, frankly, the Iraqis have negotiated national unity governments since 2006. And little by little, Iraq is getting better. It's not perfect, but it is getting better. That's kind of what we wanted in Syria. Now, fast forward. It's not 2012. It's not 2013. Now it's 2018. Assad has largely won the civil war. There isn't going to be a negotiation. And so it's time to adjust the strategy. It's time to adjust the tactics to meet that reality. The strategy used by the Obama administration failed and failed badly. To what extent did our engagement, you mentioned Iraq, what our, our engagement in Iraq, our actions in Iraq, to what extent has that destabilized Syria and led in the Mideast in general to a more um, disheveled 
set of states. Mm -hmm. Well, I worked in Iraq for five years during the George W. Bush administration. Since I speak Arabic, uh, they asked me to go over there and and work at the American embassy. Um, It was was an absolutely ridiculous decision to invade Iraq. It was catastrophically stupid. Um, Why did we think that's what we should do? Well, I think the Bush administration completely misjudged American interests. Um, They seemed to think that if they could get rid of Saddam Hussein, that several things would happen. Number one, Arab states would make peace with Israel. Number two, Arab states would become more democratic. Uh, Number three, uh, Iran would be intimidated, deterred, and be more docile. Um, They completely misjudged uh, the uh, repercussions of overthrowing Saddam Hussein. Um, I do think, having talked to people in the Bush administration, some of them really did think uh, Saddam Hussein would give chemical weapons to terrorist groups. Uh, As it turned out, he didn't have a stockpile. He had know-how how to make chemical weapons, but he didn't have a stockpile. Um, In any case, it was just, it was an incredibly stupid decision. It ended up, it ended up uh, creating a civil war in Iraq, which the Americans contributed to by stupid mistakes. We didn't want a civil war, but we got one. Um, And that instability in Iraq created a void where there was no government control of any kind in Western Iraq. When the Syrian uprising started, and it was the Syrian uprising's beginnings, I was on the ground in Damascus, it had nothing to do with Iraq, it had everything to do with police brutality in Bashar al-Assad, Syria, during the Arab Spring. But that, that ungoverned space in Iraq, next door, had terrorist groups connected to al-Qaeda in it, you know, government forces, so they could kind of run around. When the Syrian uprising started, those terrorist groups in Iraq began sending teams into Syria uh, committing terrorist acts, frankly, against the Syrian government, uh, car bomb attacks and shootings. And and it contributed to the instability in Syria. It is not the cause of the instability in Syria, but it contributed to the instability. What is the cause of it? The essential reason that Syria was unstable, the uprising, is Syrians had decided, had watched on television, that the police brutality of that security state, the secret police, Syria has four different secret police services. There is no rule of law. There is no habeas corpus. There is no freedom of speech. There is no freedom to assemble. You do any of those things that the government doesn't like, you can be arrested. Your family can be arrested. Almost certainly you will be tortured, beaten up. At a minimum, you will be beaten up in detention. In the case of many people, there's rape uh, and even extrajudicial killing. With no accountability, there is never anybody brought to trial for committing egregious human rights violations in government security centers. That brutality is what led people who had been watching the Egyptian revolution on television, who had been watching the revolution in Tunisia, on television, who've been watching the revolution in Yemen on television, the Arab Spring, brought people out, not at initially, not demanding that Bashar al-Assad go, but demanding that police officers, and they had names, who had been committing uh, acts of brutality in detention centers, that they be brought to justice, that they be held accountable. 
The government responded with incredible brutality. Shootings, arrests, they were literally arresting thousands of people a week Mm. during March and April of 2011. I was there. I was watching this. Uh, We watched from a distance many demonstrations. They were very peaceful. We did not see any weapons. Uh, Frankly, the the government buildings were never attacked. Uh, They were undefended, basically. Uh, Mobs could have easily destroyed government buildings. They did not. Uh, But the government's brutality after four or five months of these demonstrations, by July 2011, people started to take up arms. Basically, soldiers from the Syrian army started defecting and saying, we're not going to shoot our cousins and our neighbors anymore. They defected and they started shooting at the secret police who were constantly coming in and trying to repress these demonstrations. So then why did the U.S. get involved? As the situation got worse in 2012, um, and we started to see violence on a countrywide scale, we started to see flows of refugees, the situation was such that it was clear there could not be a negotiation between the opposition and between the Syrian government. The Syrian government would not negotiate unless there was more pressure put on it. And so in order to put pressure on the Syrian government to negotiate, President Obama in 2013 approved a small weapons transfer program to particular groups in Syria that were fighting who were themselves, for the most part, secular. They weren't Islamist. They weren't Muslim Brotherhood or anything like that. Um, But it was a very small scale. Now, at the same time, Roger There were other countries involved in Syria. It wasn't just the United States. Uh, Turkey was deeply involved. Saudi Arabia was involved. The United Arab Emirates were involved. Uh, The Qataris were involved. And they, too, were sending in arms. And what you ended up seeing is uh, just a, a rush of weapons in to the armed opposition without really any coordination. That failure to coordinate between the different countries sending in arms, I think led to some of the catastrophic results that we've seen over the last five years. Ambassador Robert Ford, that leads to a much broader question that I have, and I I know that you can shed some light on it. What, given our Mideast entanglements, and I'm going to use that word because I think that's what they are. What are our underlying historical, present, and future interests in Mideast with the array of different Sunni and Shia countries? And why are we so engaged? Well, I think listeners here will understand how important the price of gasoline is. Yep. And it is a world market for energy. It's a world market for oil. It's a world market for gasoline. And so even though American production of hydrocarbons has gone up with fracking, it's still a world market. Tomorrow, Roger, if oil fields in Saudi Arabia, if oil fields in the United Arab Emirates or Qatar or Kuwait 
uh, or gas fields in places like Algeria and Qatar. If those are shut down or if uh, access to them is blocked, uh, the price of gasoline here in the United States and around the world is going to skyrocket. Just yesterday, after the Trump administration said uh, Iranian oil should no longer be sold on world markets, uh, this is part of the pressure that the Trump administration is putting on Iran, uh, the price, the world price of oil went up $3 a barrel from 67 to $70. We're going to see a jump in gasoline prices probably Oh, around July 1, July 2, just because of that Trump administration announcement. So that's one. Energy, whether that, we like it or that, not. That's true historically for sure. It's true historically, but it's also true today. And what about in the future as we move to more alternate energy sources? So I, everyone is in favor of alternate energy sources, not least because of climate change. By the way, the Middle East is suffering terribly from climate change, but that's another issue. So... But alternate energy sources are not going to replace hydrocarbons for at least another 25, 30 years. Right. During that 25 or 30 years, the Middle East energy supplies will be an essential element of the world energy system and the world energy structure. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's a reality. We have to do it unless – I don't think we're going to have – electric-powered cars that are going to be able to easily drive these long distances over mountain passes in the western United States for, a t for some time yet. It's going to take a while. Same thing with things like uh, electricity plants that are running on natural gas. It's much better than running on coal, but that natural gas is part of a world market, and it, those, those uh, generating stations pay a world market price for energy. So the Middle East is important to us for that reason. Now, there's a second and a third thing that's important. Second, it is a reality. I'm, I'm, a lot of uh, Muslims get angry at me when I say this, but it is a reality that the Middle East is one of the, uh, one of the sources of international terrorism right now. We can talk about why, but it's a reality. Um, the terror attacks that we have seen over the last two years, I think I mentioned them a little while ago, in places like Paris, Brussels, in Germany, multiple locations in Germany, from Berlin to Stuttgart, 9-11 um, here in the United States way back. Uh, those originated from groups connected to the Middle East. We have an interest as a country to protect our— 9-11 with the Saudis. Well, Saudis and Emirates. great allies. Well, we can talk about that if you want. Um, we have an interest in trying to protect our own citizens and citizens of our allies, places like Britain, where they've also had terror attacks, uh, France, etc. Uh, we have an interest working with those allies to stop that terrorism, at a minimum to contain it so that it doesn't reach out and thwack us. Um, ideally, address it at its roots. But addressing it at its roots... Roger, involves everything from uh, economic opportunity for young people in that part of the world uh, to fixing completely dysfunctional political systems. And those are not things that the Americans, even working with our allies, those are not things that we can change rapidly or that we can change by ourselves. We can help contribute 
to uh, addressing them over the long term, but there is no short term fix. And so there will be times when we're going to end up in military actions, but we need to be very careful about that. Otherwise, you slide into an Iraq situation. That's what I'm worried about, sliding into something in Syria, the slippery slope that I mentioned. So that's a second interest. There's a third interest, which, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an idealist. I was in the Peace Corps, etc. I would like in a perfect world to see people over there uh, enjoy the same respect for basic human rights that are enshrined in the United Nations Universal Charter of Human Rights that dates back to 1948, Eleanor Roosevelt, after World War II, with other countries, defining a set of basic human rights. Um, that would then, I think, help with some of the terrorism problems over the long term. Uh, but again, that isn't something the Americans can quickly fix. We, you know, Americans go into Iraq and and we did disband the Iraqi security services, so you, now there's freedom of speech in Iraq. It hardly solved all of Iraq's problems. You have mentioned an array in the Mideast of Arab countries, and we've been discussing those. There is really one Western country in the Middle East, Israel. What is Israel's role in the Mideast, and obviously they are a part of the Mideast geographically, mentally, probably they are not. They are part of the Western world, Europe and North America in particular. Um, what is the role of Israel in fostering conflict in the Mideast and also ameliorating conflict in the Mideast? Well, I think Israel is a is an essential part of the Middle East. And I think, uh, I'm sure some of your listeners have visited Israel. Um, the people who live there, I think, feel well, like I've they live there in there. for the, a while. Yeah, um, and I've used to visit it often. My wife, who's also a diplomat, uh, served at the American Embassy in Tel Aviv for two years. Um, I, Israel is a part of the Middle East, mentally, emotionally, physically, strategically. Um, with respect to conflict, of course, there is the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, it is an essential part of the current Middle East political landscape, and it's obviously destabilizing. Just you could see when uh, the Trump administration opened the new American embassy building in Jerusalem, and there were demonstrations uh, in places like Gaza and violence, and ultimately um, hundreds of Palestinians were killed and injured during those demonstrations. It's obviously it's destabilizing. And it would be better, much better for the Middle East, and I would argue for Israel, if there could be a solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. I myself am worried, Roger, that as time goes by and uh, Israeli populations in uh, the West Bank as defined by the 1967 borders, as the Israeli populations in the West Bank increase, the prospects of a two-state solution are diminishing, are fading. And once the Palestinians say we can no longer get to, us, to our own independent state, they are almost certainly going to turn to the Israelis and say, forget the two-state solution. We want to be part of Israel with full equal civil rights like regular Israeli 
Jewish and Arab citizens. Voting, military service, access to the same economic benefits, different Israeli programs. It's a very progressive state, Israel. Uh, I think that will cause a crisis of identity in Israel. Does it insist on being a Jewish state or a democratic state? And when I speak to friends um, from Israel and from the pro-Israel community here in the United States, I warn them that you don't want to get to a situation where Israel faces that identity choice, Jewish state or democratic state. That, to me, would be the worst of all possible outcomes. So, But I worry, as I said, that the, the prospects for a two-state solution are fading, and then we will come to that unhappy identity choice. Ambassador Robert Ford, first, we agree on that. And secondly, um, I want to broaden our conversation uh, to the future uh, and, and talk about, in, in Mideast and global terms, um, what, given, given the rising conflicts and tensions, particularly with China and Russia, how do they affect our positions in the Mideast and our future actions in the Mideast? We've only got about three or four minutes for you to answer what I think may be a very big question for a short amount of time. I'll do the easy part first. China is involved economically in some of the countries in the Middle East, and it offers an alternative for, for example, investment and technology. Um, and so you will see uh, countries such as Iraq, um, and we have pretty good relations with Iraq, but Chinese oil companies are actually going into Iraq in at least as big a way, if not a bigger way, than American companies are. They offer better terms to the Iraqi government, and the Iraqis choose the Chinese. Um, it's very interesting how the Chinese, in a sense, have taken advantage of what the Americans did uh, economically. Uh, they do the same thing, by the way, in, uh, in places like Africa. Uh, but China's not a military player in the Middle East. There are no Chinese forces anywhere near the, the Middle East. Uh, they have a small base in a country called Djibouti, uh, down on the Horn of Africa, sort of facing the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, but it's not a big presence, nothing like the American presence. Now, Russia, different question. Unlike China, there isn't a whole lot that the Russians have economically. The Russian economy is only a little bigger than Italy's economy. People forget that. And Russia's economy is actually pretty small. But militarily, they hit above their weight. So, for example, in Syria, the Obama administration's uh, strategy to try to end the war was to get to a political negotiation using tactics such as uh, arming the rebels to put pressure on the government to get the government, the Syrian government, to go to the negotiating table. The Russians invalidated that tactic. They, they ended up torquing and uh, uh, bringing down the American strategy by themselves, A, sending more weapons to the Syrian government, and B, uh, ultimately, in 2015, when Assad really was wobbling and beginning to talk about his inability to win the war, that's when the Russians sent in their air force. And that, that torqued and uh, stopped the American strategy from succeeding. Ambassador Robert Ford, we are going to have to stop despite the fact that I'd like to go on for hours more. 
Thank you so much for sharing your experiences, your knowledge, your wisdom. It's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Roger. You've been listening to Outside In, an original production of KBUT, hosted by Roger Kahn and produced and engineered by Mark Dugan. Hear archived episodes at kbut.org. Just look under the Programs tab.